In the latest in our Squamar Moments series, we catch up with legendary stand-up comedian Reginald D. Hunter about the moments which have defined his life and career. Enjoy. Senor Hunter, thank you very much for joining me on Square Mile Moments. How are you? Better than I deserve. Thank you for asking. That's very good to hear. So Square Mile Moments, brand new podcast. Very, very exciting. Uh, We are basically getting on some amazing people in the public eye, asking them about moments that have defined them, key moments in their life that they can remember, that have become part of their core memory that we're going to work through. And you've spent a significant time here in the UK now uh, for your, you know, in your life. And so I feel like I need to, before we kick off with any of your moments, I need to kind of understand what was your inspiration for this, this staying in the UK for so long? Or is it the fact that actually people can understand you over here? Well, that sounds rather loaded. Let me think. Um... No, 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 not loaded at all. No, it's, it's, it's a comprehensive question, to be sure. Um, uh, I put it this way. Uh, I felt like I knew what the future was going to be in the United States, and I didn't in Britain. And so I put, I put all my chips on red. Yeah, that's fair enough. I get that. What, is there anything specific about the British person that you think is so stereotypical that you could almost guarantee that anyone would be the same? Um, a, a healthy appreciation of hot tea. <laughs> yes, there we go. Now, now we're nailing it. Right. <laughs> I'm going to pick out my first moment um, for you to answer. I want to see what you're going to generate. So the first one is your moment of influence. So this can be a moment that influenced you, be that a piece of art, a piece of work, literature, uh, a moment of influence where somebody spoke to you or something you saw on TV list is endless, but one that stands out to you where you were influenced by something that's helped shape and define you. Oh, wow. I don't know. I don't know if I'll be able to answer that properly because that's, I've had so many moments of influence. And if I come up with one just off the top of my head, I'm sure in 20 minutes or or tomorrow I'll go, no, this one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think it was my, my third week and my third week at RADA. And we were doing um, stage combat, um, back backwards flips, and I tore I tore the ligaments in my ankle, and they offered me the money, my, my tuition money back, and to pay for my flight home. And it was like a digging deep moment. It's like I could go home and say, "Yeah, I did my best. Bad luck. I tore up my ankle." Or I can stay here and gut it out and see what happens. But if I go home now, I go home with nothing. And so that was a pivotal moment. That is, that's a serious moment. What was it that was kind of helped you drive through that? Um, uh, tramadol. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I'm, I'm, with no embellishment, I had a dream over that weekend uh, when I was making up my mind. And I dreamt that my father was helping me take my luggage back to my room. And he was saying, welcome back home, son. And then he sat there and he closed the door and I was in my room with the bed stripped down, the wall stripped and the moon was coming, moonlight was coming through the window and I was just home again and it felt like nothing. And I woke up and I was like, <gasps> and the decision was made. <laughs> you knew straight away. That was that. <laughs> right there and then. What? 
about RADA did you enjoy the most? Because I know that getting into a school like RADA, many aspiring actors would dream of. When you got that acceptance letter, what was that moment like for you? Uh, I, I, got the, I got the letter on a Friday afternoon and I opened it and I quickly scanned it. And in my quick scanning of it, I saw that I was not awarded the three-year place that I had been looking for. And I had just been offered a short course. And I took the letter and I threw it up against the wall. And I didn't pick it up again until Monday morning. And when I picked it up Monday morning, I was like, still rotter. Still rotter, baby. I'm putting that on the CV. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that's a moment of inspiration. So there we go. Right away, we're talking, we're going into kind of how you started out early. Was there a moment then of advice when you were kind of starting out in your career, be that going into it as an actor or as a stand-up comedian? Was there a time where you received some advice that really helped you get through something? When I was in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, doing an understudy role, um, an acting internship, I was locking up the theater one night and the president of the Mississippi Film Commission was just sitting in the auditorium by himself, like he had something on his mind. And I walked up to him and I said, is everything all right, Mr. Emily? And he said, his name was Ward Emily. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I nicknamed him Ward of the State. And, <laughs> and I said, is everything all right, Mr. Emily? And he said, you're in a hurry, Reg? I said, no, sir, what you need? He said, have a seat. And I sat next to him and he said, whenever you make that big move to New York or Los Angeles, make sure that you keep the ability to do something that a lot of actors lose when they get to Hollywood or New York, something that destroys most of them, the ability to say no. Always keep your ability to say no. Always keep your ability to say, well, you know what, if this is the way it has to be, I can pack my shit and go home. Keep your ability to say no. He says the inability to say no has led to a lot of performance committing suicide, becoming drug addicted, becoming strung out in somebody else's game. Always keep your ability to say no. And then I said, has something happened to you, Mr. Mr. Amlin? And without looking at me, he said, good night, Reginald. Jeez, it's like a scene out of a film. My word. <laughs> I don't know what he had just been through. <laughs> mm, I know, some serious, some serious trouble. I <laughs> wow. So, can you remember the first time you said no then? I mean, I imagine that's got a variety of things. Not only is that in a, in a work uh, environment, perhaps, but it's a matter of being exploited in, the, in this industry as well, because it's so easy for someone, you could, someone saying to you, oh, can you do this gig for me, you know, as a favor? And then if something snowballs like that, then, I mean, the list well, is endless. Well, I'm not so much, I mean, yes, it helps to be able to say no, being asked to do certain favors, because there are those of us who will say yes, in order to be a good person, before we thought about if we want to do this. but. It's more like being able to say no when someone is presuming that you have to say yes because you're a man, mm. or because you're poor, or because you're black, or because you're a comic. 
you know, it's when they assume that, you know, you, you are captive to your own being or your own chosen profession and that you don't have other options and just, and that you can do, and then you can pass this opportunity by and go, okay, fine. And I wonder if I taken that advice a little bit too, too much to heart sometimes, I've, you know, sometimes my independence and my pride or my own just stupidity has made me say no, but it didn't cost nobody nothing though. No, of course not. And also it's good to, I always think not, 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 not have a rule book as such, but at least you know what you follow and you have your own morals and you have your own kind of guidelines that you stick to. I always find it's, I know of course people evolve through their own experiences. And obviously if you have a really bad experience, then obviously that's going to change on what you say, but it's good to have kind of something to stick to stick to your guns, if that makes sense. Well, it's funny you should say that because I was replaying an old argument in my head recently. Um, I was taught back home that there's a difference between principles and situational ethics. And principles are meant to serve you and protect you, um, even from yourself, whereas situational ethics um, um, maintains your adaptability to most situations. And I was taught that principles were the best. Um, con artists, chancers, um, happy-go-lucky people, they, they have situational ethics. But over time, I began to realize that situational ethics, um, situational ethics means that you can, you can cope, you can make lateral moves, um, you can play outside the box. Um, no doesn't necessarily mean no. Mm -hmm. And then at age 53, I've come to realize that the ability to have both rather than ex be extremist or absolutist about one or the other. Mm. It's like, it's like asking which is better, your right hand or your left hand. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're absolutely, absolutely correct. Now I'm going to look at my list of moments here. I'm trying to see which way I should navigate this. Um, okay. What about, this is a very nice one, actually. A moment of fulfillment. What, when's there been a moment in your life or career where you've kind of almost sat back and taken a breath and gone, I'd be happy to go now. This is, this is a fulfilling enough moment that I'm happy with this. I, I don't know. The floor is yours. You've seen Superman the movie? Yeah. Christopher Lee? There's that scene near the end. Well, like there's a flood that's coming to wash away this middle-class neighborhood and Superman pulls, pushes all these rocks over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, he dams up the flood and he's standing there and he's like, wow, I did a really good job. Oh, that, then he starts going and I think I'm forgetting, oh my God, fucking Lois. <laughs> <laughs> there's always something else. <laughs> yeah. Um, my first DVD, I had that sense of fulfillment, that sense of, Okay, I got it out there. It's it's done. It's released. It's it's in the ether, and no matter what else happens, that is a, a public record, and it's and and I'm I'm standing there smiling and thinking it's done. It's done, and it's like oh shit, Lois. Yeah, so, yeah. What was your lowest then? <laughs> yes, sir. Indeed. Excuse me. 
<laughs> so what's that feeling like then of having your own material kind of distributed because people especially particularly comedians work for years and years and years even doing the circuit traditionally here in the uk anyway get trying to get their work out in the public domain often it takes so long to get this done what's that feeling like then of actually getting work distributed in the public domain uh do you feel nervous or is there the excitement because obviously i know that you you toured um and you've got of course you're confident in your work but still being put, released in the public domain not only is it in the uk but there's the opportunity for it to be streamed now globally so this this is where we, we come in i mean dare i say to not give two fucks about what other people think but <laughs> well anyone who doesn't care what people think what people think don't have to ever say those words. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a sure sign that someone cares about what people think is when they go on about not caring about what people think. And, and that's as it should be. I mean, to an extent, you have to have a cutoff line where, you know, where people think can't come through the door. But in my line of, in my line of work, your success depends largely on what people think. <laughs> So, yep. you know, you're conning yourself if you say otherwise. Um, I'm sorry, what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just talking about having that, having your own work distributed into the public domain. Oh, um, it's not something I thought about for a while. It's just, it's, 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 it's been a, a condition of life for about 10 years now. And I know that, but I have a, I have a sense of comfort knowing that all that all that all that's left for me to do to make my work seen even more is to just die. So <laughs> <laughs> to eternalize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I get that. I get that. Just like you know, one of the best things Tupac did for his music was to die. <laughs> and Elvis. And <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> when as a stand-up comedian with your work. Do you constantly feel, and I, don't, I, I actually don't, I, I don't know this, when you create a new show, for example, your new show coming this summer uh, up at the Edinburgh Fringe, do you always think as a comedian that your, your latest work is your best work? Is that how your mind works and evolves? I, I'm not sure. I don't know the answer. I didn't know how you thought about that. Mm, um, I can't recollect ever feeling that way. Like feeling that, that that must be a really good feeling. Like, <laughs> ah, I know this is my best work. I know yeah. all I do is the best. And um, for me, it's more like midways through a, the run of a show. The first on, on the way to the to the midway point, you're a mess trying to think. You know what goes here? Is this relevant? Is this is this funny? Is this? And then all of a sudden, one night, it clicks and it makes sense. And, and then when that clicks, then you go, oh, I'm about to be, I'm about to become really good for a while. And that feels good. <laughs> um, and then when you get in that zone, it's like, it makes food taste better. It makes sex better. It makes sleeping better. <laughs> it makes talking to boring people easier. <laughs> <laughs> Which is always a challenge. <laughs> um, this is always a tricky one because I always think that 
everyone is going to say that they don't have any regrets, but is there a moment of regret in your life or one that stands out? <laughs> I would, I would like, I would love to know someone who just has one. <laughs> is there, is there anything that's monumental that you go, oh, I do regret if that, if I'd done that differently, be would you, I, anything I, particular? I have a rotating carousel of mental regrets. Um, depends on what day it is and what I choose to feel bad about on any particular day. But, um, well, I remind myself that my failings and my faults are just as much mine as my victories. And I claim them and I own them. And I worry, I wonder sometimes what the pursuit and excellence at this has cost me per personally, mm. uh, friendship-wise, relationship-wise, even family-wise. Um, I think I was one of those people who took out the seats in his plane so it could fly faster. <laughs> and so, yeah, I don't know. I, I think sometimes when I get like, in my own head and feeling a bit sort of heroically wistful. I feel like old, an old middle-aged Bruce Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just, I've done all of this and I'm a bit more sore and I'm a bit more lonely and this Gotham City really any better off. <laughs> sure. <laughs> How do you stay on top of invasive thoughts? What do you do to manage that? I don't know. Some people do do stuff to manage. That. I don't know if you do. Um, I, it is my tendency that whenever I have um, repeated invasive thoughts, um, I immediately try to work out what's the source of it. What, what, what's, what's triggering this now? Um, first place to look is, am I tired? Yeah, mm. I get a particular, particular kind of tired. And it's like, I just have these shit montages that just mm. keep going on. Yeah. Uh, um, other times I have flashbacks of memories of moments between me and people. And if it keeps coming back to me, it tells me, it suggests to me that somewhere in my psyche, even though it had been long forgotten, it still matters on some level. It still, it has made some impression in my spirit or my, my consciousness. Um, For years, I used to try and distract myself from my invasive thoughts, um, music, vaginas, drugs. But now I'm more like, I'm more apt to go, well, what's that really about? And I have come to find out in my personal experience that when I've gone back to apologize to people about things that trouble me or that trouble me about my behavior towards them, very often, the situation didn't mean the same thing to them. And often they don't even remember it. Um, I get, yeah, it's, I get messed up over stuff that nobody, nobody else seems to care about. <laughs> no, yeah, I understand that too. I mean, I think everyone has that because ultimately what, what is the a thought of worry? What is it? 
because usually it's thinking of the worst or it's thinking of, of the worst of what's yet to come. No one has ever thought about worry in the future and gone or, you know, made it the best scenario possible. We always imagine the worst possible scenario, don't we? Particularly in the future. And then if it's a past one, you'll relive this moment over and over again. And actually, eventually, it'll probably become distorted anyway. I, um, I also try to make myself remember that after hospital, death, police, eviction, food, after all of that, everything else is just feelings. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And what are feelings? <laughs> <laughs> Just something that you experience. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it's like, it may feel like everything to you, but it's... It'd be absolutely, it's probably nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably just you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, my ne the next moment I'm going to ask is a moment of euphoria. So a moment of elation, be that the first time you walked out of the Apollo or I don't know, the first time you went back home and something happened. I have no idea. A moment of, of euphoria or elation that just stands out for pure joy. Again, it's, these are feelings, I guess, but mo a moment that you really did have that burst of, burst of emotion. Uh, 2004. Uh... I was at the Edinburgh Festival and I had my director with me and, my, and my, my manager and a couple of friends. And then when we got the call that um, we had been nominated for the Perrier, I hung up the phone and it was just dancing like we had just won the World Series. <laughs> <laughs> and I've always fantasized about winning, but I always fantasized about winning with a team rather than winning by myself. And that was, a, that, was a, that was a great moment of not just elation, but shared elation. Mm, yeah, absolutely. There's no better feeling because all, all these actors have teams and, and even yourself, you've got people behind you that are supporting you no matter what. And even though there have been maybe friends or relationships that have been lost along the way, there's still a core team that be them, you know, family or indeed your actual team in terms of publicists or agents that have stood by you and worked with you. And to get that moment in 2004, I can't imagine. I mean, there's no better feeling than being in Edinburgh anyway, unless you're obviously absolutely knackered on the 28th of August and uh, nobody's turned up. But <laughs> not that that would happen to you, of course. But oh, I've seen some lean days now. I don't think I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> What's the, this is always a good question because it's, Edinburgh has the ability to suck the life out of you. What's the worst day that you've ever had at Edinburgh? The worst day. <laughs> um, this is a tough question, but uh, it was my first Edinburgh Festival, um, two thousand two, and there were four people in the audience, and I came this close to going on stage and saying, "Let's don't." Let's go to a bar. Let me buy your drink and let me tell you what I would have said. But then something inside me said, you won't graduate to no comedian until you go through this. And yeah, it's, I think there's something inherent in all comedians that we feel good when we are at least able to say, I did my time. Yeah. <laughs> you gave it your best. 
Yeah. Even yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. I mean, on the on the spirit and conversation of Edinburgh, then the moment to come. Talk to me about this August. Uh, this August is going to be an interesting challenge. I'm bringing a show there that I've been touring, and it's been coming out. The show's been coming in around 90 minutes, and so I'm going to have to do 60. Yeah. So it's um, I'm looking forward to being to being tight and efficient. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sharpening up. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward. I mean, it's like um, no loose ends. <laughs> I think this is the first time that I'm bringing a show to Edinburgh that's that's ready. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is surprising. <laughs> I mean, like I, I brought shows behind that were mostly ready, but you know, you the trick to doing Edinburgh is to, is this is to end stronger than you started, and. Mm. And a lot of times when you're rookies doing the Edinburgh Festival, you start and you get drunk and high and you, you peter out towards the end. But champions close that last week out stronger than the first week. And, and so, yeah, I'm, and I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm actually, I don't want to stay excited, but I'm very eager to see what the show is going to become. It is very different than when we started in January. And Lord knows what it's going to be come around October 3rd. I mean, August 3rd, rather. <laughs> October, <laughs> you're going to miss it. <laughs> well, October 3rd, that's another beautiful thing about Edinburgh. Yeah. Do you do a, your show for an hour, five nights a week, six nights a week for a month? When you get back in the clubs in September, you're a hot knife through butter there. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you've been living weights all summer. <laughs> yes, so true. It's just training, isn't it? <laughs> oh, that's such a good point. So uh, we people can catch you at the, uh, in the assembly rooms at 10 mm -hmm. past nine, from the 3rd yep. through to the 29th of August, yep. which is immensely exciting. I'm going to come. I'm going to be there. Um, obviously, I will let you know when I'm coming because it's going to be a shit hot show. But, um, but that <laughs> sounds like we won't be sharing a beer after that. <laughs> um, well, I, we could because <laughs> I, I, I I'm, I'm expecting this Edinburgh after, after, after I grind for an hour. I expect to be able to go home and be mellow for a while. 10 past nine. I think that's a great, great time. Mm. Absolutely perfect. Just what you want for people, I reckon. Yep. And um, yeah, you feel, you feel a sense of honor and privilege about that. And you feel inclined to want to justify people's money at that hour. So, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Look, Reg, I've really enjoyed chatting to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for composing such smart, unusual questions. Oh. <laughs> For more interviews and features with some of the most engaging personalities in TV and film, music, sport and culture, go to squaremile.com.